Mini episode 1260 of the FBH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1260. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris here, and this is Part 28 of our Coronavirus Crisis 2020 series, in which, of course, we're taking a, a broad look at basically everything that is affected by coronavirus these days. And the segment today, specifically, is going to be dealing with matters around the world that, uh, for the most part, most of us probably aren't paying a whole lot of attention to because we are consumed by this uh, crisis that is unprecedented, at least in modern times. And uh, we have a really outstanding guest here today to break it down, what's going on in a lot of the world's hot spots and how this is likely to affect us in different theaters going forward from this point in time. Just to back up a little bit here, during the coronavirus crisis, uh, again, I've been very pleased that uh, we've been a little bit stronger on doing uh, hard news segments uh, than we had been previously. I always like to have a balance in there, and it's easy to get a little bit out of whack with some of our sports and entertainment coverage. Uh, I always like to have uh, a, a healthy complement of news in there, and within that, the one area where I know we can do better as far as having segments on is geopolitics. And I put that on myself. I have to prioritize that a little bit more. And I actually did, uh, through the, uh, the wonders of Twitter here today, I was able to uh, book a very, very fine guest. And just to back up again for a segment, as I've talked about previously on the show, being uh, that sort of uh, strange political creature known as the paleoconservative uh, coming out of that mold uh, and having some of the views that I have, uh, we did a really excellent segment back in 2010 with Tom Piatek, who also happens to live in the uh, Cleveland area, and we down at the old uh, Sports Talk Network studios back in the day, for anybody that might remember that, uh, and having him in for kind of a long talk. So we, we've tread on some of this subject matter previously, uh, Tom Piatek being actually a, a very good friend of Pat Buchanan's. And what that brings us to is, of course, uh, back in the day, Pat Buchanan, co-founder uh, of the great magazine, The American Conservative. And for folks like me, particularly with my bent on foreign policy, of not being a free trader, as are a lot of people on the right, to be honest with you, uh, The American Conservative is kind of the gold standard for news and opinion for folks like myself. And many of my favorite journalists actually write there, whether it be Jim Adel, whether it be Matt Purple, or whether it be today's guest, who we're very, very pleased to have on the show. And uh, our guest today covers the beats of foreign policy and national security. Uh, a really excellent uh, reporter, also author of the book, Patton Uncovered. We have with us today, I'm very pleased and honored to welcome Barbara Boland to the program. Barbara, a pleasure to have you. How are you today? Great, thank you for all those nice things you said well, about the American Conservative. Well, I'm a big fan of the American Conservative. I'm a fan of your work. It's it's nice, again, for, for people like me 
who have the kind of bent that we do on this, the, the realist perspective on the right, which, uh, again, you know, we've seen a little bit more of it in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, Trump has gone in there and I think stolen a lot of the talking points of my guy Rand Paul, but I'm sure you know as well as anybody covering the beat what gets said versus what we sometimes do in foreign policy can be two different things, particularly when you got guys like John Bolton and Tom Cotton around as president. Oh, absolutely. I watched the hearing today on Venezuela, and it was, there was, they kept saying how we have a bipartisan consensus, and apparently everybody agrees that we should be doing more for regime change in Venezuela. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's the agreement. Well, yeah, the, the bipartisan consensus always seems to be around war somehow. That's that's the one way that we can always rally around that. And Venezuela is definitely one of the topics I want to hit. I want to hit some of the topics particularly that you've been writing about in your columns the last couple of months. And uh, I guess uh, if, we're, if we're doing this under the banner of what's happening in the world while the coronavirus crisis is raging, let's start in China. You've had some really excellent coverage there, as you have in, in all the areas. Uh, in particular, this March 30th column, uh, how China's lies brought the world to its knees. Particularly noteworthy the way that you broke down how we got to this point, some of the things that have kind of led up to this. And I understand uh, you had communicated to me off the air that you have another column coming up on China as well. Yeah, so I'm working on a piece about how, you know, from a realist foreign policy perspective, we can deal with a country like China without... Um, upping the ante and increasing the likelihood of actually going to war with them, with, which is starting to look like there's quite a lot of hawks that are all too eager to do. A lot of the rhetoric is starting in that direction, and I know my colleague uh, Kelly Blahos is working on a piece about how some of these hawks are even advising Biden now. So they're supposed to make sure that whatever happens, the military-industrial complex can keep working and keep getting their contracts, whereas we do need a real policy on how to deal with China and some of their non-traditional tactics and some of the things that they've done, which are aggressive, but not in the way we are used to dealing with um, foreign powers. Yes, and uh, let me give a signal boost uh, to your colleague Kelly as well. I'm a big fan of her work also uh, over there. Just so many of you folks over at the American Conservative. And uh, again, with everything that's going on there, you, you've got folks like Tom Cotton who have sort of seized on this. And, and again, I didn't pay a lot of attention to whatever his China rhetoric was before this, so I don't know if he's uh, Johnny-come-lately on the whole China thing or, or if he's just seizing on it because militarism. But uh, some of the same people who want us to go to war with Iran, who want us to go to war, uh, or to, to stay at war, I should say, in Afghanistan, there's a real through line as you're identifying, that is very disturbing here as far as these folks whipping up, as you say, potential war fever towards China. Yes, and I mean, we do have to really evaluate how we got to where we are with towards China and with the coronavirus, but before we can do that, we also have to take care of business at home in terms of getting past the pandemic and getting to a point where we're able to. And some of the things that we want to do, for instance, Globally, we've been encouraging countries to stop using Huawei 5G technology, but the best way to do that, to um, counter China in that way, is to have a better technology that we can offer. We can't even begin to do things like that until we get the virus under control. 
Absolutely. That is what comes ahead of everything right now because it's not really possible to make any kind of advancements as long as we're in the crisis mode that we are in. And when you look at China, when you, you see what we're up against there, and, and obviously it is important, this year has underscored how important it is to stand up to them, to draw a tough line. Uh, but in terms of the brinksmanship that uh, some people seem to be advocating right now, loud voices in the Congress, special interests, I would also say uh, the military-industrial complex as well, is there any sense that you're getting of realization that we are dealing with, uh, I don't know if it's quite a co-equal nuclear power, but a nuclear power nonetheless? I mean, there are very tangible consequences of going to war with a country that can fire nuclear weapons right back at your country. Is, is there any sense that you're getting from any of these hawks about the danger that could happen if this thing spirals out of control? No, but they don't tend to evaluate their past failure. You know, they're not <laughs> learning lessons from, you know, they still think that maximum pressure on Iran has worked, and they've never reevaluated their support for the Iraq war. Um, so you can't really look to these guys for a lot of introspection. Um, and they're not, what's really a little scary is that they always reach for the same playbook. And like you're pointing out, this is, we are, Iran might be a middle tier country in terms of, you know, how their population, their wealth, and their military. But China is almost a co-equal superpower. It's not somebody we can pressure in the same kind of way. Also, if we want to make serious inroads on the trade issues, we can't do that single-handedly. We will need other countries to support us in, you know, backing away from using China as a supplier for all these different things that in the coronavirus pandemic, we're clearly seeing the pitfalls of relying on China. So we have a rare opportunity to convince other countries that this is important, but we can't go about it in the same way where we just sort of do our own thing and much, much of it actually scares other countries off because it seems the overly militaristic and overly, you know, leaning towards those options as opposed to um, moving China into um, making decisions that we would want them to make rather than pushing them, you know, towards a more militaristic response. You know, that's an excellent point as far as some of the nuance that's involved here because, you know, I, I can just tell you that personally in terms of my sort of journey of understanding foreign policy, coming from in my extreme youth being kind of a Cold War militarist to post-Cold War, uh, getting introduced to Pat Buchanan's ideas uh, about America first, and it's a thing where, and I guess right now I'm sort of a hybrid of where Buchanan has been at historically and where Rand Paul is at, and when you think of the Rand Paul realism, I, I think you identify that maybe a little bit more so with negotiation, with international relations. I know Rand's not a big foreign uh, aid kind of guy, but as far as working with countries as a means of avoiding military, quote-unquote, solutions, and this is one of these things where the people that are around Trump, uh, again, he's as we, as we covered, whether it be John Bolton in the past, whether it be Mike Pompeo, He's got a whole lot of people around him uh, that don't believe in realism and don't believe uh, in non-military solutions, so to speak. So I wonder, uh, on a diabolical kind of a level, if they understand 
uh, how much they're able to do, because Trump at least talks a good game on being a realist, on being a non-interventionist, but when you undermine these international relations that you have here, when you have kind of a go-it-alone thing, when you interpret America first as overtly trying to score better than other countries in every realm that you're in, that, as you point out, that undermines the ability to work with them to maybe build a common cause against China or find other non-military solutions to problems. Right, and I think that a couple of other points to remember with China is that they, you know, traditionally have not been seeking a global empire. Um, so that's important to remember in terms of how we handle things with them. If they fear that we will be interfering with their internal affairs, as we've done in so many countries, um, we are putting ourselves much closer to a war footing. So, for instance, Pompeo's speech the other uh, week about how this is the new Cold War, <laughs> and some of Bannon's rhetoric recently, which she's been saying, we're going to war with the CCP. Those are the kinds of things we need to really avoid saying, because if that, and, and also we need to avoid that being our policy. What we are looking should not be war with China. It should be to back them away from the aggressive things that they've been doing and to also get other countries on our side. But if it looks like we're interfering with them, with internal political affairs, we're going to lose to them very quickly. Yes, absolutely. And uh, that kind of pragmatism that you're describing, what we need is unfortunately the, in too short supply these days. And uh, as I said before, this is a disturbing kind of a thing globally here. When you look at the China hawks and the way that they are ratcheting up the rhetoric that, uh, again, it could go too far, there could be miscalculations, could lead to a war. This is the same kind of militarism that we see in other theaters. Uh, as you said uh, previously, the, the very folks who never believed that uh, the Iraq war was a mistake, don't believe that a war with Iran would be a mistake, and believe that it would be a mistake to get out of Afghanistan. And this is one of these things where uh, and again, I know you've covered it recently, there, here, this whole thing about the Taliban, the Russian bounties on American soldiers, you know, again, I can be a very, very cynical individual, sometimes given to conspiracies, but uh, wasn't that a convenient story for the people that want us to get out of there, the people who don't like the peace deal uh, that, that we struck to get our soldiers out of there? Uh, to have this now come up like, well, we can't get out of there. That would be that we're not standing up to Putin and the Taliban. You know, they, they always find an answer for why we should keep the troops there indefinitely without supplying an answer as to what we're actually fighting for at this point. Well, it's kind of funny. It kind of shows you their point of view that they even think that that's a logical argument to make. I mean, essentially they're saying if you, if you get the Russians about these stories, it's more dangerous for our troops to be in Afghanistan, but should be there, because there's nothing on them. That doesn't even rationally make sense. Unless you believe that that Russia doesn't want our troops to be, we should put troops like this is a risky game. Yeah, I mean, there's there's more to the world than sticking thumb in Putin's eye. I mean, this is the, the whole the way that it's it's getting personalized, really, to that degree. And that uh, the way that everyone is in a rush to assume that this story is correct and that this intelligence is actually proved correct, when, as I say, 
at the very least it is super convenient as far as serving the agenda of those who don't want us to leave there. And uh, as you'd mentioned previously, uh, again, another area of contention here uh, with some of the hawks is Venezuela, where, uh, again, as you had written about, uh, and again, and this is, it shows you how preoccupied we are these days, because to say that we basically had a second Bay of Pigs in the Western Hemisphere, and it's gone largely unreported, uh, that's kind of hard to believe. And yet here we are. We are in a situation where uh, we apparently attempted to foment a revolution there uh, with, with a couple of uh, guys that we were trying to prop up and then backed away from at the last minute. The exact pattern of what happened in Cuba in 1961. I mean, it's, it's completely remarkable to me because the Senate, you know, they hadn't had any hearings about this because it occurred during the coronavirus beginning of the lockdown. But today they held a hearing. And not a single senator asked about that event. So there's no curiosity as to what the U.S. knew about the Greek parade that decided to launch this crazy mission that undermined Guaido's, which we're supposed to be supporting. No one wants to know what we knew about that and why did our intelligence agencies do nothing to stop it. It's, it's remarkable to me that what the hearing actually focused on, so instead of asking any questions about that, they were asking about, well, um, should we put a military blockade up? I mean, that, that, that was a genuine question from Romney as to whether <laughs> we should block. So that was, by the way, Russia, China, Turkey, and possibly Iran are all operating in Venezuela. And they're questioning, should we, should we have more military assets? Like, putting up a military blockade, which Abrams tells them, you know, well, that's an act of war, and that's not our policy right now. Of course, we know that Abrams would probably be completely for that if you asked his personal opinion. Yes. What's crazy to me <laughs> is that, and then, at the end of the hearing, Menendez is almost farcical, but he wraps the whole thing up by asking Abrams, is Venezuela a clear and present danger to the United States? And no joke. Like, he asked that completely seriously after listing off all the problems inside Venezuela. And then Abrams says, yes, it is. And to his neighbors. I mean, how is Venezuela, with all its problems, a clear danger to the United States? While we are undergoing the coronavirus pandemic, these are our problems. Yeah, I mean, that just underscores the absurdity of it. And, uh, again, I'm not surprised to hear that uh, Romney was sticking his two cents in in favor of a militaristic solution. Uh, as you say, it is right. kind of, it, it, it's, it's, it is funny about Abrams, though, at least half-heartedly doing the whole, oh, we can't do that thing, because... Uh, you know, all things being equal, Elliot Abrams never met a war he didn't like. 100%. And Rand Paul does ask him at one point in the hearing whether he would support, if the U.S. president wanted regime change in Venezuela military, our military just go in to support regime change. Would he be for it without congressional approval? And all Abrams says is, that's not our policy. <laughs> and unfortunately, Paul doesn't follow up because yeah, we know that's not our policy. We know Trump doesn't want anything like that. But Abrams is close to the president advising him on Venezuela. If Abrams is personally in support of that, it matters. And, of course, we know he's personally in support of that because he hasn't met any regime change he didn't want. But even so, he avoids answering whether he's in support of that. But, you know, every time the Democrats were asking him about, you know, should we sanction more Turkish companies or more Russian companies or um, all these 
harsh measures, you know, he's completely in favor of that. And it's insane because they're also at the same time lamenting that there's 5 million Venezuelans who are refugees who had to escape Venezuela because they're starving and um, there's, you know, no money in Venezuela. Yeah, and again, it's, it just goes to show you, and, and once again, the common thread of all these different uh, hot spots around the world here in, in terms of a potential geopolitical uh, conflict, uh, that in, in every opportunity, and this is what the Hawks, this is what the neocons seize upon, you are talking about legitimately highly unsympathetic figures here, uh, whether it was uh, Chavez back in the day or any of his uh, commie stooges that are still running Venezuela, whether it be the Taliban in Afghanistan, whether it be the Chicoms. Uh, so again, it, it, in, in every way, they are able to whip up this fervor, this hysteria that we have to go to a maximalist position to stand up to them, whatever the consequences may be. And that's a matter where, uh, as you indicated, yeah, there's some times where maybe I'd like to see Rand Paul do a little bit more follow-up questioning or anything like that, but for uh, for the tiny, tiny handful of people that are doing the things that you and I might like to see, whether it be Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, Mike Lee, Justin Amash, and that's probably about it, Matt Gates maybe, but, uh, you know, that's what they're up against, because they're up against this whole thing of just fanning the flames and trying to get people whipped up, uh, which has been a time-honored tactic in this country to be able to get wars going. And uh, one wonders with, uh, again, this almost unprecedented domestic crisis of COVID-19 and the, the reaction to it and the failures of the reaction to it, you wonder if we might be doing a little bit of turning inward that might be kind of welcome in a way to where maybe people won't be as susceptible to this kind of foreign war hysteria. I mean, you would think, you would hope so, but it doesn't appear that many members of the U.S. Senate have have changed their tune. Well, yeah, and that's, uh, if, if we're waiting for the Senate to come to the right idea on that, yeah, it could be uh, a long, long wait, which uh, another area that I wanted to ask you about, as long as we're talking about our elected members of Congress here, uh, one of the most powerful voices in their ear is always APAC, as far as uh, trying to, I would say, dictate uh, whatever the, the policy should be towards Israel, which I pretty much always describe as maximalist, kind of a blank check kind of a thing. And uh, to any of my friends who, uh, and, and it, it, it turns out to be largely my friends who are uh, evangelicals. I, I'm a Roman Catholic, so I, I don't uh, I hear some of the same things about Israel, perhaps, that they do. I always end up having to explain to them, you know, there is a spectrum of opinion in Israel. Not everybody over there is a Likudnik. But uh, it always gets conflated that if you don't go along with the APAC agenda, the Likudnik agenda, that you are anti-Israel. And uh, as you're indicating here in, in your column, that we may be getting to a time when people are hopefully coming to a more sophisticated understanding that you can support Israel without giving them a blank check to do whatever they want. I um, think that that's true. I also think that one um, major political event that's in need of that is that Netanyahu is really struggling at home, and he's had trouble keeping his grip on power. So um, it's even likely that eventually, I mean, he's, he's undergoing a corruption trial. Um, it doesn't, and they're also dealing with coronavirus. So I think that there's more opportunity than ever for other voices with different opinions on how our policy towards Israel should look, and in inside Israel, how they should interact with the U.S. and with 
other countries. Um, and all of that's very positive in terms of taking them away from the kind of Netanyahu consensus um, that we've had for maybe the past 10 years or so. Yes, and something that I find to be interesting and distressing is that nobody really tends to notice with Israel, uh, it, it, especially those who are within the bubble of that consensus, is that with the demographic changes that are happening in Israel, i.e. the fact that uh, Arabs are populating uh, at a faster rate than the Jewish population, they're going to run into a point here where they're either going to have to become a full-fledged apartheid state if the, the the Hebrew segment is going to maintain that kind of a power, or there's going to have to be a legitimate two-state solution here. But we're, we're coming to a point where a very consequential decision is going to have to be made, and everybody that's in the Netanyahu consensus wants to pretend that is not the case. And many young Israelis are completely not in favor of his policies and are much more secular and um, want there to be um, a more secular state attitude, whereas Netanyahu has kind of conveniently walled it into it. It's difficult to explain um, from an American perspective, but, but his uh, majority seems to be failing, and he's kind of having to do more and more extreme tactics to keep to keep them together. So I highly doubt that, especially with young people um, turning away from that, that that's going to continue. I think that, in general, young Israelis are more in favor of having a country that has, you know, what most other democratic countries do, which is um, parties that are, I mean, they have a uh, parliamentary system, but a country that shares that power with our um, parties would make for a stronger Israel against the other, you know, Middle East dictatorships they have to deal with. Yes, well, we can only hope that that uh, demographic change there with uh, the, the views of the younger people, we can only hope that that gains a lot of power in Israel because it'll, it'll be a lot better, I think, healthier two-way alliance if that's the case, uh, if we can kind of deal with each other without having those blinkers on that, that hold us to certain things that can be unhealthy sometimes. And to bring it kind of full circle here on looking at these issues, uh, we, we've spent a decent amount of time talking about the neocon consensus. It, of course, overlaps in a lot of ways with the neoliberal consensus. And uh, I know that uh, you are also very much on top of the story of the neoliberals, neoliberal, if you want to call her that, Susan Rice, uh, apparently being very high atop uh, Joe Biden's list of potential vice presidential contenders, of course, with him having limited uh, the selection to only one gender here, and most seem to be thinking post-George Floyd, potentially a minority woman. Uh, she is somebody who has been gaining a lot of currency in the Biden circles here. Uh, it would be highly unusual in the sense that uh, you'd have to go back a long time to find a major party candidate who had virtually no domestic policy footprint whatsoever. Uh, that would be on the ticket, but these are very unusual times. And uh, again, she and uh, you know you you pointed this out as well. I, I identified with every failure of the Obama era, whether it be Libya, whether it be Syria, all the things that basically uh, went wrong during that period of time from a neoliberal point of view. She was in the thick of it. Yes, she was, and I read her over five hundred pages memoir to get a better idea of whether she learned anything from those uh, mistakes, and I can't tell you what she really 
development. She's played all her cards very close to the chest. I guess knowing that she may have to work for any one of these people again, she really, I thought her description of the Benghazi um, tobacco was particularly interesting because the way that she describes it, she wasn't involved in that decision at all, um, other than that the White House called her and asked her to go on Sunday shift. And instead of, like, questioning why no one else was available to do that, like Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, whose job it should have been, it was her decision after all, she basically goes on the shows, and she said her mother questions the, uh, like, why no one else is available. And then it, it's very interesting. I mean, she describes that after she went on all the shows and then she got attacked and then she had described that after, so she had worked for Bill Clinton while he was president in the state department and in charge of African affairs. But when she was for Barack Obama, the Clintons had been very cool towards her. But after Benghazi, and after she goes on the Sunday shows, and then she becomes like the face of Benghazi, she had another, they were at a party, and the Clintons were there, and Bill came over to her and was really warm, and he was like, oh, it was terrible the way they treated you. Now, what she doesn't say, but she very heavily implies that the Clintons knew exactly what they were doing when they weren't available, when Hillary was not available that Sunday, you know, to go on the show to take responsibility for her decision. Rice doesn't say that, but it's very implied. She tells you this story about her mom questioning, how come somebody else isn't available, and, like, she smells a rat, and then she closes the chapter with this story about Bill Clinton. I don't know. I would say she thinks that they set her up, but she doesn't say that. And to be honest, the whole book is like, you just want her to give you more information because she was, she talks about these different decisions, like whether to bomb Syria. She wanted to do it. Obama didn't. They go back and forth. Eventually, he decided not to. And she uses that as an example where, like, the policy, like, she had the right policy, but he had the right politics because it didn't work out. But she doesn't take, like, serious lessons, or she probably does, but we don't know what they are. Yeah, and she doesn't seem like the kind of person who is capable of a whole lot of self-reflection on these matters. And, uh, again, I hope the American conservative was giving you combat pay for wading through all 500 pages of her <laughs> tiresome memoirs here. And uh, as far as the Clintons being duplicitous, yeah, Susan McDougal could not be reached for comment. But, uh, you know, everything that she is dealing with, you know, in, in that book there, and, again, just being such a blank slate, this is a thing where, this is, and again, if you believe that there are uh, ominous things in her record, and again, as far as the policies that she's been on favor of internationally, a lot of them have been ruinous, it, it is really kind of a dangerous moment to think that uh, she could be a heartbeat away from the presidency, because again, let's face it, right now Joe Biden is, I will say it, the prohibitive favorite to win the election. And, uh, again, with the, the way that he's been looking in public this year, and, again, I think they'd be wanting to keep him under wraps, coronavirus crisis or no, uh, there is a much stronger chance than usual that whoever goes on the ticket uh, is going to be the next president of the United States after next January 20th. So uh, the thought of Susan Rice being such a cipher 
and being in, in such a spot where she could become a very, very strong candidate uh, to be President of the United States, much stronger than your usual Vice President's chances, uh, that could be very frightening. Well, I just think that she's been involved in many of the foreign policy decisions the U.S. has taken over the last um, 20 years while Democratic presidents have been in office. Now, whatever we're going to hold her responsible for, though, was going to have to ultimately be Obama, at Obama's door. So Biden needs to be the one who's answering those questions, too, if he ever is asked any serious questions. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I think that in some ways, I guess, after reading her story, I'm sympathetic to the idea that not really there to blame her for Benghazi, at least not specifically that one incident. However, you know, American foreign policy has had so many mistakes, and if you've been involved in it for 20 years, you're going to own a lot of that, and what I would like to hear from people is some acknowledgement of those mistakes, rather than doubling down and just, we didn't regime change parts of, essentially. Yes, uh, but uh, in the age of spin, which we've been in the, la the last couple of decades, it seems, if you have aspirations of higher office, and hers could not be more transparent right now, if not vice president, clearly she wants to be secretary of state or something comparable in a Biden administration. Yeah, she is unfortunately not going to be the person to do that. And uh, as I reach for a segue a little bit here, clearly she is somebody who will never be uh, remembered with the greatness of General George Patton. We always like to give our guests a chance to plug on the show here. I know this is a book that was out some time ago, but uh, uh, in, in the, in the uh, hopes that uh, you could still make uh, some bucks off of selling books, if, if there's any still in print here, Patton Uncovered. A very intriguing premise for a book here, General George Patton in World War II. My great-uncle was a medic who uh, served uh, directly alongside him for a period of time, so I'm, I'm definitely interested in the subject. Talk about that a little bit, about the book that you had on the, the great general. Well, I personally liked I was interested in Patton, and some was interested parts about her story in World War II to be something that a lot of people don't recognize about that war, which is that it was very political, and that so many of the decisions that were made have to do with politics, not military strategy at all, and a lot of them had very real long-term consequences, including giving Russia all of Eastern Europe. Um, which we didn't have to do, but that was a political decision. And, and obviously one with extreme consequences for those populations that had to live under communism for almost 50 years. So a lot of people think about World War II, and when they think about it, they think it was the good war, the good guy versus the bad guy. And I think what's really clear when you read everything that Patton went through and what he had to say is that that's couldn't be less true, that there were so many decisions that had nothing to do with the population that were affected or the people that would be killed or hurt, and it had to do with what the last interest was long-term. Sometimes it had to do with Eisenhower's eventual political, presidential ambitions. So, you know, and we, we lost over that. We aren't living through it anymore. So I think it's, it's very instructive in terms of, of realizing that this piece forces that we work with now, we've always had with us. Absolutely. That sounds uh, really, really fascinating. Like any student of history, a uh, great student of history is going to want to pick that up and uh, read it. Uh, Patton Uncovered. And uh, again, uh, I'm, I'm sure 
uh, constructed with uh, the same care and research and dedication. It goes into your reporting at the uh, American Conservative. Again, uh, foreign policy and national security reporter at the American Conservative, Barbara Boland. And uh, again, uh, Barbara, as I anticipated, uh, a real delight in going through all these subjects uh, with you. And uh, again, uh, to help us keep tabs of what's going on in the world, love to have you back on the show here uh, subsequently. And I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to FDH Lounge, mini-episode 1260.